5: The doctor told us that when Courtney arrived, they opened up his chest to try to save him. I'd been at the hospital for over an hour, and I still hadn't seen my son. They told me I couldn't see him until detectives got there. And I told them, I said, well, I'm going to tell you right now. If I can't see my son, I'm going to tear this whole hospital up. They finally let us see Courtney. After a few moments, I asked everyone to leave because I had to be with him. I had to be with him by myself. I began to touch him. His body was still warm. I caressed his face and kissed his forehead. (laughs) And I told him, I was like, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. you needed me the most. And I walked out of the room and then it really hit me that Courtney was gone and I just collapsed.
4: That's Shaprell Wells. In 2016, Chapeau's son, Courtney Copeland, was found shot outside of a Chicago police station. His heart stopped while he was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital.
5: Going through all of that, losing my child, nobody could comfort me the way that Brent could comfort me. And I realized that one of the greatest joys that I had in my life was my marriage.
6: The greatest pain you could ever feel is the loss of your child, because it's supposed to be the other way around. Like your parents are supposed to live long lives and your children bury you. Parents are not supposed to bury the child. I would always hear these terms like, you know, this is the new normal. I'm like, no, there's nothing normal about having to bury your child. There's nothing normal about that.
5: We did a lot of praying, a lot of praying. We had such a great spiritual family who protected us, protected our kids, and also helped us to deal with the fact that we lost a child, we're going through this investigation, and so I think our foundation in God is what kept us together.
4: I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed. Pearl and Brent Wells have been married for more than 23 years, and in that time, they've gone through more than a lot of couples go through in a lifetime. After Courtney was murdered by gun violence, Perl spent the next two years trying to figure out who killed their son. Courtney's death changed everything for the two of them. But back in 1997, they were young, unburdened, in their 20s, and they met at a birthday party where neither of them were looking for love.
5: I was actually on another date, but I don't know, it was just something about him that that caught my eye, and I guess I caught his eye. <laughs> so that night we actually ended up talking until like five in the morning. We had so much in common. I think that's why I liked him so much because we liked the same type of music. We talked about our dreams. I mean, it was like so weird. It was like he was my best friend from like day one.
6: I had never dreamed of meeting someone or talking to someone like this, where everything just immediately fell into place and it felt perfect and I didn't want the night to end. But then in reality, it had to because I had to work the next morning. I had just gotten out of a five-year relationship and I really was not thinking about meeting anybody I was not planning on meeting my soulmate there. But that's how it turned out.
4: Chapelle was a single mom with a four-year-old son, Courtney. Courtney was a sweet, smart, funny little boy, and Brent and Courtney got along right off the bat. They bonded over their love of really corny jokes. Chapelle was in a phase in her life where she was growing spiritually, getting in touch with God. She was falling for Brent, and she knew he loved her son but she didn't know if she could get serious with him and stay on her path to the church. I
5: felt my relationship with God was so much more important. And then we found out that we were having a baby.
6: And I came in and she told me, she was like, guess what? I said, what? And she was like, I'm pregnant. And I was just overjoyed. I was just really happy. I was was just like, wow, for real? And that was just maybe one of the happiest moments in my life. But then later on, she would tell me she was kind of surprised on how I reacted because with the previous relationship, when she told her her ex that when she was pregnant with Courtney, his response was, well, why are you trying to ruin my life? And I guess she thought that I was going to react the same way. I'm like, no, why would I do that?
5: So, of course, all of his family and friends felt like, oh, she trapped you and... It was crazy, but you know, I was like, no, it just, it was just like this whirlwind that we had.
6: It definitely raised some eyebrows. There was a good friend of mine. I was telling him about it and he was like, he was like, dude, have you lost your mind? I'm like, no. And then I had a sister who I would talk to and she was like, you know what? I think you've been set up and you don't even know it. I'm like, no, that, that's not the case either. I mean, Either my mom had her, she reserved her judgment. She was like, I'm not going to say anything until the child is born. And then once Kayla was born, I took her over and she was like, yeah, this is, that's, that's definitely your child. So no, this was, that set up. But then she was like, if you're happy, then fine. And I was like, yes, I'm, I'm definitely happy. Like, this is where I want to
4: be. Having Kayla matured the two of them, they felt like they had to grow up pretty fast. Shapiro says they had to make some really conscious decisions about how they wanted to proceed with their life if they were going to proceed in this game called marriage. And one of the things they learned was that they had to figure out what a marriage really was. And that's where the church came in. They both say the church helped them solidify their marriage. Because it was easy to question themselves, to question whether or not they were doing absolutely everything wrong.
5: One thing that we were told in marriage counseling is don't bring anybody else in your business if you have a problem in your marriage take it to church talk to your pastor because sometimes we may share intimate details with a family member or something like that and they never forget what you told them exactly and that causes problems so we learn very early on that whatever's in our marriage whatever problems we have We have to learn to pray about it. And so I believe that because we were so committed to each other, that we were determined to make it work and beat the odds.
4: Shaparro and Brent faced a lot of challenges. Not with each other, but with life, with jobs, with kids, with starting a family. Within the first couple of years of getting married, they were pregnant three times. The second pregnancy came in 1999. Brett had just started driving for a major trucking company, and he was on the road all the time, mostly doing overnight driving.
5: I had Courtney, I had my one-year-old daughter, Kayla, and I found out I was pregnant with twins. And unfortunately, the twins didn't make it because I had preterm labor, and I had delivered them at 24 weeks. I actually had to go through the process of birthing both of them. So we had to deal with the loss. We were in a new marriage, we had two kids, and we had to deal with the fact that we're burying twins at 27 years old.
6: With my job, I wasn't there when everything happened. That really had took a toll on me also. I mean, because I didn't want to do the whole long distance trucking thing, but back then at that time there weren't any options like once you get your cdl to try and get something where you're home every day you have to at least have a year experience so i just had to take what i could get being gone and then the majority of the pressure to raise two children and then you're pregnant with twins i mean looking back it put a lot of pressure on her and then we even having the miscarriage and i was gone and i'm like okay i got to get back home and not only that but then just dealing with the hurt that I feel because being gone, I would come home like, of course, like Courtney, of course he he knows me. He recognized me, but Kayla's a baby. I would come home and I would come in to pick her up and she would kind of back up or give me the strange look like, I don't know that man. And it was a lot. So then that just started my determination. I was like, okay, I have to make a change in this career because I can't be gone like this. Growing up, I didn't have the best example of a father. Like, like my parents were married, but then throughout most of my childhood, my father was not there. He would be in jail for a little while, and then he'd be in a mental institution because he had planned insanity to some some crimes he had committed. So I just knew I wanted to be the father that I didn't have. Looking back, I just have just so much respect for Superl for everything that she was unable to endure while I'm trying to figure it out and come up with a better means to provide for my family. Thank God things kind of fell into place and I did find a job while I was home every day, even though sometimes I'd have to work nights, but at least I'm there to take some of the burden off of her in raising our children as a family. Well, just, not just as a family, but as a marriage.
5: We faced a lot of tribulations that and we had friends who also got married at the same time that we did and their marriages didn't survive. But I I always go back to one of the key factors of why our marriage has survived these 20, almost 23 years. It's not because we're perfect and we didn't have problems or issues because we have. It's the fact that we have a foundation that's built on love, on commitment, trust. And of course, our main focus has always been God to keep our marriage together in the midst of what we've endured.
4: Time for a quick break. Be right back.
8: But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic.
5: Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex.
8: But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: By 2016, Chaparral and Brent had been married for 19 years. And even with all the hard work they'd put into the marriage, it just wasn't working anymore.
5: I was like, I am done with this marriage. I'm getting ready to leave. I don't want to be in it because we were going through that wave, that downward wave, where you know, I didn't feel like I was being listened to, I didn't feel like I was being heard, I wasn't getting enough attention, and he was feeling like I wasn't listening to him. And it was just like we were in this really crazy funk, probably the toughest time ever in our marriage. And we've been through lots of ups and downs and everything like that, but this was the time that I was like, okay. I'm going to be done with this marriage. Even though I knew that he was doing everything right that he could possibly do as a husband. It wasn't that he was a bad husband or I was a bad wife. It was just that, you know, we had probably sat in our ways and we were just on a routine. That's what I felt. Yeah. That we were just like in a routine. Like, okay, he go to work. I be here with kids or I'm doing this. And everything was just like a schedule. But it was not like, Something that we were actually putting in that time for each other.
6: Right. Because in the beginning, I mean, I'm not like a huge romantic person, but I would always try and be attentive and just do little things to surprise her, just do something she wouldn't ex- expect. For example, before I was like living with her, I would get off work in like middle of the night, like two in the morning. So I would just do something like swing by her house and I would go by her car because either the, the lock didn't work or she didn't lock the doors on her car. So what I, I would just get like a little bouquet of flowers and put that on the dashboard, or I would just get like a little card or something. And I was just trying just do just little things. And then after a while, I just stopped. And it's like my wife was saying, it's just getting into this routine, get up, go to work, come back home, eat dinner, go to sleep, get up tomorrow, do it again, go to church, And then the little romantic side of doing the little things and the sweet nothing, I just stopped doing it. I guess I was too busy, worried about being a father and stopped being a husband, or I just pretty much just forgot that that it's okay that I can still be that same romantic person.
4: But then the two of them got news that no parent should ever have to hear.
5: When the police came to knock on our door, it was about 2 a.m. in the morning. And I remember rushing downstairs trying to figure out, who is this bamming on my door? And that moment, I remember being so worried about what was wrong. So, of course, when they asked me if I knew a Courtney Copeland, my mind already rushed that it's going to be a tragic situation.
4: That was the night of March 4th, 2016. The official story that Shaperl and Brent were told is that around 1.15, their son Courtney was shot in the back and drove himself to a police station where he collapsed. He was then taken to a hospital in an ambulance. They were told his heart stopped before he could reach the hospital.
5: So once we got confirmation that Courtney had passed, to me, I just felt like my life is just like at a standstill, like This is not happening to me. This is not real. This is not actually occurring. I just remember us immediately just trying to comfort each other, comfort our daughters as best as we could. Because, you know, our life had changed in an instant. At that moment, going through all of that, losing my child, nobody could comfort me the way that Brent could comfort me. And I realized that one of the greatest joys that I had in my life was my marriage. The way that he loved me, the way that he loved my children. It was nothing else in this world that could ever compare. There were days and nights, weeks and months where I would always end up laying in his arms crying because. Even though I was fighting this external battle, the only person I realized that I could be vulnerable with was with my husband. I would rarely cry in front of others, but he was my safe place.
4: Oftentimes when a child passes, the mother's the one who gets comforted, and the father's feelings kind of get lost along the way. And they experienced that.
5: Everybody was like, oh, Shaprall, Shaprall, Shaprall. Oh, we're so sorry, but not realizing that Courtney also had a father. And Brent, he raised Courtney from four years old until his passing. And he was the only true father figure that Courtney had. And so I had to realize that, hey, he also needed to be comforted. What he was giving to me as a husband, I also had to return that to him as a wife. That realization came probably about the second month after Courtney had passed away. And I remember I was sitting in the kitchen and I was crying because here it is, the two-month anniversary of my son's passing, and I am just falling apart. And I remember Brent getting ready to go to work, and he walked out. Because usually all the time he'll kiss me goodbye in this particular day, he walked out the house and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he just walked out. He knows it's the second month anniversary of Courtney's passing and he just left. And then a few moments later, God told me he also lost a son. He also is grieving. It is your turn to, to comfort him.
6: I'd be at work and I'd be driving and then I would just have to just pull over because it would be something that would make me remember Courtney, whether it was like maybe a song from Usher that he used to listen to, or something from just like, maybe just certain, like certain songs he used to listen to. And it would just come on the radio. And then I would just have to just pull the truck over and I would almost have, have a breakdown. And I'm not realizing that I didn't even take time to take care of myself or even worried about how I felt because I, I'm too
5: busy trying to worry about everybody else. I called him and I apologized, you know, and told him that I'm sorry. I know that I'm grieving, but I have to realize that you're grieving. And I would say that that was the first time Brent actually broke down about Courtney. He felt that somebody acknowledged his pain and his loss as a father for his child. Everybody really does tend to the needs of the mother, but they expect the man to always to be strong and, and hold the family together, In which Brent did brilliantly. But there are times where we as wives also have to comfort them and tell them that they don't have to be strong.
6: I thank God for that call and for that conversation as well, because it, I mean, it hurt. The greatest pain you could ever feel is the loss of your child because it's supposed to be the other way around. Like, you know, your parents are supposed to live long lives and your children bury you. Parents are not supposed to bury the child. And then I would always hear these terms like, you know, this is the new normal. I'm like, no, there's nothing normal about having to bury your child. There's nothing normal about that. I didn't want to accept it right away because... It was just a lot of feelings. I've always looked at it as we raised him, you know, we taught him right from wrong to, you know, always be the good person. We raised him in our faith. But what had really disturbed me and my wife was, we had to make sure that we controlled the narrative. There were no lies told on him or trying to make him, make Courtney seem opposite of who he was because we've all seen the situations. It could be a child or adult that's killed unjustly, but then things are taken and things are getting twisted. And then he's automatically judged like, OK, well, he had tattoos or he must have been in the gang or he had a nice car, he must have been a drug dealer. And we're like, no, he was a good child. We just
5: refused to let his name be slandered. I felt like before Courtney died, this was going to be our last year as a married couple, it brought us ironically closer together because it taught us both how much we loved each other, how much we needed each other, how much we have endured during our marriage, how much we can overcome. And it also taught us to hold closer to God in this process, Mm -hmm. because I don't think that if we had that spiritual foundation, that we would even be remotely close to saving our marriage because we'll, I, I've heard through other couples that we've seen go through these tragedies that, that they break up, they separate. yeah And I believe that it's because they don't have the foundation that we have. I tell people all the time, they're like, how do you guys keep going? How do you get up every day and keep fighting for court? And I tell them it is not me. It is God who helps me because there are days when I am weak and I I feel, you know, tired. I feel frustrated. I feel so much grief and I'm overcome with all of that. But those are the days that God always sends someone to me to help me, help me get over that hump. And so when we had this this rift in our marriage and then the loss of our son, God told us, We need to fix this. And so during this whole process of investigation of Courtney's marriage, we were still going to counseling. We were still talking to a lot of spiritual advisors about how to navigate this because we still weren't sure what had happened to our son. And we had the insatiable need to know.
4: Time for a quick break. When we get back, Shaparro embarks on a harrowing and often dangerous investigation to find out what happened to her son.
8: But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic.
5: Jerry had died of AIDS, and
2: it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex.
8: But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Chapeur Wells was a mother on a mission. Now, we're telling Chapeur and Brent's story in this episode, but if you want to hear more about Chapeur's journey to find out what happened to Courtney, please tune into her podcast, Somebody. It's a seven-part series about Chapeur's investigation. It's also on iHeart, and it's an incredible portrait of a mother trying to piece together the last moments of her child's life. See, after getting incomplete and inconsistent information from the Chicago Police Department, Chapeur started her own investigation. She found herself stonewalled by city bureaucracy, and that's when she reached out to the Invisible Institute. Together, the two of them forced the CPD to release the video footage from the district police station.
6: There was times when sometimes I would feel maybe a little bad or a little guilty sometimes because my wife, she's out there every day. You know, she's talking to the police. She's she's out there investigating with help from a lot of people. And sometimes I wish I could have been there, but then... At the same time, the reality is I still had to work. So, I mean, I was fortunate enough where I was able to, you know, make enough money to still provide and would allow my wife the freedom to still go out there, to look around, to ask questions, to talk to this person, to talk to that person, to put the podcast together.
5: Unfortunately, we live in this world where somebody has to work. So I was very understanding. and I've always been understanding that he has a job to do. But as you hear in somebody, you hear me call him often when he's on the road. And whenever there was a change or a new development, he would always hear it first, even if he wasn't in town. Yeah. You know, I would always pick up the phone and say, hey, this is what happened. OK, today we're going to meet with this lawyer or tomorrow we're going to talk to this person who may have seen something. So I felt that I always had his support. And I felt that he was always there, even if he wasn't physically there. I felt that he always had my back.
6: And let me add on to that. She's never made me feel guilty about it. Like, well, why can't you be here? So there was never any of that.
5: I would say that our marriage is, is stronger, as crazy as it may sound, because I think, like I said before, I think we had to realize what was important. Even after Courtney's death, I would say I'm a better wife and a better mom because I don't take anything for granted. I realize that life is so precious that in an instant it could be gone. And so I realized that I have to live and I have to love every moment, every second, as if it's my last. And so those are things that have changed me since losing my son. And I think that our marriage and our realizations, the way that we communicate with each other has changed for the better because we realize that life is so precious. if I would have known that I wouldn't have saw Courtney before he passed, I, I I don't, you know, if I could go back and make some changes, I would. We always in the phone calls now with I love you. We always in our text message with I love you, with not only with each other as husband and wife, but with our children. Mm-hmm. We don't leave the house without a kiss because we realize that It could be our last moment. And so we are very aware of showing and expressing our love for each other.
6: There's two things I do when I leave out in the mornings. One thing is like I'll pray when I get up and I make sure that I will give her a hug and a kiss before I leave.
5: And it's just like a new way to behave, a new way to feel because it could be our last moment. and, And I never want to live with regrets.
9: This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. Special thanks to Shapiro and Brent Wells. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Ramsey Yunt. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Kling. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. With a very special thanks to everyone at the Somebody Podcast production team and Allison Flowers from The Invisible Group. To find out more about the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation, please visit www.copelandmemorial.com. That's C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D dot com. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's J-O at committedpodcast.com. You can grab a copy of Joe's book, How to Be Married, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz.